From CAFE and the Vox Media Podcast Network, welcome to Stay Tuned. I'm Preet Bharara. I'm really thankful that Ukraine has stood and that Kiev stands and that the President of the United States can safely, in wartime, travel to the capital of Ukraine and stand there with the President of Ukraine having helped provide some $30 billion in assistance. That's Biana Golodriga. She's a senior global affairs analyst at CNN. This week marks the one-year anniversary of Russia's invasion of Ukraine, which initiated the full-scale war that has devastated the region and impacted nearly every corner of the globe. This week, President Biden visited Ukraine for the first time since the outbreak of the war, walking around Kiev with President Zelensky as air raid sirens sounded above. Golodriga joins me to discuss the tragic human costs of this war the political maneuvering of global leaders in response to Putin, and where we go from here. That's coming up. Stay tuned. Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. It's hard to imagine a world where we leave future generations with fewer rights and freedoms. Since the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills aimed at blocking people from getting the essential sexual and reproductive care they need, including abortion. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves access to care, and with supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. If you're a small business owner, you know that it isn't just your business, it's your life. And whatever your business might be, you want someone who understands. That's why you might want to check out State Farm Small Business Insurance. Why? Because State Farm agents are small business owners too, living and working in your community. That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. Now let's get to your questions. This question comes in a tweet from Twitter user DannyMac234, who asks simply, why is Joe Biden going to Ukraine? Well, I would think about answering that question, but instead of that, I put that question to our guest this week, Biana Golodriga, and she answers it at some length. So stay tuned for that. We got a number of questions about what's going on with the special grand jury and the district attorney in Fulton County, Georgia. This is an email from Olivia who asks, did you learn anything from the unsealed parts of the grand jury report in the Fulton County Trump investigation? So you'll recall that there's been this ongoing debate and litigation about whether the special grand jury report should be made public. The judge finally decided that a small portion of it would be made public, the intro, the conclusion, and the part of the report that suggests that the grand jury, that the special grand jury... Uh, believed that one or more witnesses may have been lying and that they took that matter very seriously. So we learned that they've taken their job seriously. We've learned that they have recommended indictments. And we have learned that they unanimously decided that there was no widespread voter fraud. So that's something. But the meat and potatoes, as Joyce Vance and I discussed in the Cafe Insider podcast, we don't really know just yet. Now, we know a little bit more because there's somebody who's been talking. This question came in an email from Judith, who wrote, This woman from the Georgia grand jury who's been talking to the press is very concerning. Is she causing damage to the Georgia DA's case? 
Will her comments cause a mistrial? Has she said anything that would compromise a trial? So it's very interesting. <laughs> this jury four person who clearly is excited about talking to the press and wants to talk about her experience. Um, from what I've seen so far, you know, she may be coming close to the line, but has been pretty careful not to reveal any specifics or details. When asked the question by a member of the press whether the jurors had recommended indicting Trump, the four person wouldn't answer directly. She said, quote, you're not going to be shocked. It's not rocket science, end quote. And she also went on to say, I think in another interview, that multiple indictments were recommended. Now, it's not a great look. I'm sure the Georgia Fulton County DA would prefer that the four person not be speaking and other grand jurors not speak. In fact, they're sworn to secrecy with respect to details of testimony they heard and other things that have gone on. And of course, there is a judge that has already decided that the large majority of the report should remain under seal and not be made public, which is a sign to the grand jury members you should probably not be talking. On the other hand, I don't see any particular legal damage that will be caused to any ultimate case brought against Donald Trump or anyone else. This special grand jury, remember, just composed a report. It was not able to, not authorized to, vote on an indictment. At some point in the future, if an indictment is sought, that will go to another grand jury, will not include this person, and presumably those grand jurors will remain quiet and not violate their oath. And then if one or more cases proceed to an actual trial, then a regular jury, not a grand jury, but a regular trial jury, will decide the fate of one or more defendants. And so while I think it's not a great look for this poor person to be sort of excitedly talking about her service on the grand jury and revealing some of the things that went on, I don't think it will have any prejudicial effect uh, or compromise a future trial against Trump or anyone else. Hi, Preet. This is Jeannie in Annapolis, Maryland. I'm calling because I need you to make me smart. I was wondering if it's possible to try someone without telling the jury who the defendant is. Seems to me that we're going to have a little hard time with the juries in the Donald Trump case if it ever gets that far. And could they try him anonymously? Thanks. Bye. So, Jeannie, thanks for your question. It's an interesting one. I don't see any way in our system consistent with the rule of law and the Constitution and protections for a defendant who has a right to trial by jury, and also based on the particular facts of this case, that you could have any trial against Donald Trump in which you don't tell the jurors who the defendant is. I've never heard of such a thing. There are times when a jury is rendered anonymous because there are fears about safety or jury tampering. There are times when particular witnesses testify anonymously. It's very rare, but sometimes an undercover officer who's worried about personal safety and their identity being compromised can testify anonymously. But a defendant, and certainly, by the way, if there's a criminal trial against Donald Trump relating to his time in the presidency and relating to what he did, it would be impossible to tell that story and keep the identity of the defendant anonymous. Obviously, only one person had the ability to tell Mike Pence to change the results of the election. Only one person was speaking at the ellipse. Only one person had the power and wherewithal to do all the things that he might be alleged to have done. So I understand your concern about getting around the issue of, of a fair jury being impaneled, but anonymity of the defendant is not a viable option. We'll be right back with my conversation with Biana Golodriga. Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. Your body is your own. That's why Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Today, lawmakers who oppose abortion 
are challenging Planned Parenthood. Affordable, high-quality basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. Planned Parenthood believes that health care is a basic human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies. They also work tirelessly to oppose the onslaught of new policies aimed at interfering with personal decisions best left to patients and their doctors. They won't give up, and they won't back down. You can join Planned Parenthood in the fight to help make sure that the next generation can decide their own futures. The organization needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. Support for Stay Tuned comes from Squarespace. In this day and age, if you're starting a new project, one of the first things on your to-do list is creating a website. That might seem a bit scary at first, especially if you've never done it before. But there are tools out there that make it easy for anyone to create their own site, like Squarespace. Squarespace is an all-in-one platform that you can use to build a website and help people find your ventures. Creating a website with Squarespace is straightforward and painless, even if it's your first time making one. Whether you want to sell your products or a service, or need a place to host your blog or portfolio, Squarespace can help you get your name out there and makes it easy to find on the web. They have plenty of tools to help make your first website look pretty great too, all while customizing it to fit your particular needs. Because your site is your own, and it shouldn't be fit into a one-size-fits-all box. Get the functionality and the unique look that you need. Head to squarespace.com tuned to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain using code TUNED. A year into Russia's war with Ukraine, there appears to be no end in sight. On Tuesday, President Biden affirmed U.S. support for Ukraine in a speech in Warsaw, Poland. One year into this war, Putin no longer doubts the strength of our coalition, but he still doubts our conviction. But there should be no doubt. Our support for Ukraine will not waver. NATO will not be divided and we will not tire. CNN's senior global affairs analyst, Biana Goladriga, has been covering the conflict since it began. Biana Goladriga, welcome back to the show. Oh, thanks for having me. I think, Preet, this is my first time on the show, actually. Well, no, oh, it's actually oh, not. Oh, no, didn't I? You host... had a very important role. Yes, I moderated. You interviewed me yeah. when I launched my book, which is now almost four years ago, on stage live, and that was in the podcast. So yeah. it's good to finally have you on in the traditional context. Yes, I guess that's what I was trying to say. This is my first time in the traditional context of the show, though I am an avid listener. Yes, now you get paid... Now you get paid the standard fee, which is zero. I welcome it. <laughs> so I'm very delighted to have you for many reasons, but obviously this week marks the first anniversary of the war in Ukraine, uh, the unprovoked war by Russia into Ukraine. And there are many reasons why you're a perfect guest for this week, because you've been covering the issue, because you've been talking to all the experts about how they think about the issue uh, very deeply. But I want to start with something personal people may not know that your family hails from Moldova, formerly of the USSR, the Soviet Union. And your family actually was uh, a refugee family, came to the United States 
when you were a baby, does that connection to that region of the world cause you to cover the story differently or think about it differently or more deeply? And or do you do you try to figure out ways to be more objective about it? I mean, I'm only human. So to be honest with you, it, it does hit close to home. It does feel like a personal story for me. I don't have a long connection just physically, obviously, with Moldova since we moved here when I was 18 months old. So there's not like a visceral reaction in terms of memories that this war has sparked, um, unlike my parents, who I spent a lot of time leading up to the war and then obviously once the invasion began talking to about it. And, uh, you know, this took a toll on them. It was hard for them to see. Clearly, we left for... uh, political reasons and uh, we left as political refugees and with no money at all and gives you a sense of what life was like for them in the Soviet Union and that having been said I'll never forget my my mom saying that you know things were never this bad then like we weren't killing each other in terms of Soviets or Russians or neighbors killing each other the way Russians are killing Ukrainians now um I do have to say I growing up, would mostly tell people I was Russian because, to be honest with you, especially in Texas, not many people knew what Moldova was. It's a small landlocked country of about two or three million people and uh, one of the poorest countries, if not the poorest in Europe. And now it's sandwiched literally between Russia and NATO. It borders Romania and Ukraine. And it has always, for the past 20 years or so, had a neutral take in that it depends so much on Russia for energy and gas. It has had its own civil war years ago, and it has a breakaway region of Transnistria, which is home to about 1,500 Russian soldiers. So this war has been uh, extremely perilous for that country, and it's uh, applied for EU membership. Uh, the president, President Biden, just referenced the country as well and his support for it. It's got a pro-Western country right now. And President Zelensky just last week warned the Moldovan president of an attempted coup uh, from Russia and a sort of cyber warfare, hybrid warfare attempt to cause internal strife and panic um, and have the country turn back towards a more pro, pro-Russian leadership. So needless to say, the country has been front and center, but I've been very proud of my heritage and that this is a country that's, again, small and poor, but taken in about 400,000 or so Ukrainian refugees in the past year. That's a lot given how how large or how small that country is. Yeah. So you and I are recording, I should note for the record, uh, this podcast in the noon hour on Tuesday, February 21. And as we're speaking, and you pointed this out when we began to record, our president is speaking in Poland. I don't know what he's saying, so we can't report on that. But I have a a, a basic question that a listener asked me, and I I decided I would punt it to you. And maybe the answer is very obvious, but I thought it was useful to to begin with it. And the question comes from a listener whose Twitter user, DannyMac234, who asks a very simple question. Why is Joe Biden going to Ukraine? Well, how much time do we have? Um, <laughs> we got an hour. We got an hour. In a nutshell, in a, listen, in a nutshell, it's a very simple question. It's the preservation of democracy. It, it's standing up for democratic values. America, Europe, a coalition of nations from the Atlantic to the Pacific. We were too unified. Democracy was too strong. I think it's, a, from that perspective, a black and white issue in terms of you have a, a, a country being the aggressor launching an unprovoked war 
against a sovereign country uh, with a, a democratically elected leadership that posed no threat to the country, despite what Vladimir Putin may be telling his public. So from that sense, uh, for the United States not to stand up for democracy and, and obviously knowing the risk that this could pose to NATO as a whole and aiding a country, remember, we're not sending any military to Ukraine, but aiding the country with weapons, with training, in hopes of not seeing a war exacerbate between two countries into, into one that, that could involve numerous, and that being NATO allies. Do you think based on folks you've talked to, that it was safe and proper for him to go, given that I think it's the first time an American president has visited a war zone without our own U.S. troops around to protect him? It's something he clearly has been wanting to do for a while now. It sends a symbolic message, that's for sure. You've seen other NATO allies and neighbors take that same train ride from Poland uh, into Kiev. Um, it's something- it, was it, it was Amtrak, right? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Amtrak. I didn't know they ran Amtrak. Right, which is why it took nine hours. Um, no, but— uh, I don't think they have an Acela. I don't I think, think they I have think one the, yet. I think it's the I think it's the Northeast European Regional. Yes, <laughs> is what is what he took with a great um, with a great snack bar. Uh, no, I think this is something he clearly wanted to do for a while. Um, it was a logistical nightmare, obviously, from a security perspective. And you're right; it's the first time that a U.S. president has visited a country at war when it hasn't been the United States at war, where we have a military presence. Um, it, it was smart. Uh, for all apparent reasons, for the United States to notify Russia of his arrival. And I think it sent an important message. We saw President Zelensky address Congress at the end of last year. Against all odds and doom and gloom scenarios, Ukraine didn't fall. Ukraine is alive and kicking. And I think it was fitting to see President Biden standing shoulder to shoulder and walking the streets of Kiev with President Zelensky as you heard air raid sirens uh, wailing behind them. I believe that was because there had been Russian MiGs spotted uh, flying in, in Belarus, so nearby. Um, and I think that it was a strong message to send. Can we take a step back and take stock and assess the past year, and then, of course, we'll look forward because it's important to figure out and predict what will happen in the coming weeks and months. But as an initial matter, I don't really have a sense with any degree of accuracy about what the human toll has been in the last year. I know it's wartime and there's a lot of propaganda and it's hard to figure that out. But based on the interviews you've done and the people you've spoken to, can you give us some sense of what the most accurate count is with respect to how many Russians have died and how many Ukrainians have died in this war? So in terms of what intelligence both the U.S. and uh, British predominantly have noted, um, Russian casualties in terms of deaths and casual and, and those who have been injured uh, ranges in the 200,000, if not higher, figure, which is just astronomical. If yeah. you think about, you know, how many... U.S. soldiers have died, and too many have died. But in, in that's the, four times as many Americans died in Vietnam, right? Right, and 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 in Afghanistan, if you think about yeah. how many years we were there, and so you just calculate in one year the loss on the Russian side. Um, it's huge. It's devastating. It would be devastating to any army. 
Um, the Ukrainians, I think, have bit, been a bit more um, clandestine and, and haven't been as, as public, I would say, understandably for many reasons, and not wanting to share their figures. Uh, the latest, I would say, assessment would be around 100,000. I mean, it's, it's a huge, huge number. Yeah. And I think for that reason alone, just in terms of the message it sends internationally and for morale domestically, to promote that number, to give a figure, Ukrainians have have assessed would be would not be in their favor. So they both sides have lost a, a huge number of troops. And if you know among the Russian people, ordinary Russian people, what is the figure that they either believe it is on the Russian side, or are told it is? They don't believe it's two hundred thousand, right? To be honest, I don't know what exactly they're told. I, I think that Putin had has been very cognizant of this and 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 um, sensitive to not wanting to disrupt life amongst everyday Russians and going into this war, which he still does not call a war, but instead refers to as a special military operation. Um, he, you know, going into even his tenure in office and his leadership over the past 20 plus years, he, he'd sort of set a deal with the Russian public that you don't involve yourself in politics and, and you will have steady, um, prosperous at times lives. You'll have jobs, you'll have an income, you'll have social needs and, and so and safety, social safety, you know, guarantees. And so that was their deal and you won't have war. And he broke that promise. That having been said, if you look at the people who are serving right now in the conscripts and uh, the, the death toll is disproportionately higher amongst ethnic minorities in Russia. Mm -hmm. So the purpose here being that life and remember, they, they've only clamped down even more on uh, media and censorship. You can't say war in Russia. You can't say war on television. You can't walk outside with just a blank sheet of paper in protest of the war. So having full control there or nearly full control has allowed people in, in the bigger cities, so let's say St. Petersburg and Moscow, to have a feel that, that life is somewhat normal. And I, to answer your question, don't know. And I would be surprised, very surprised, because early estimates in the war, I think it took them months to finally say that the number was at 5,000. Right. So I'm not sure what the latest is. And, and what's your sense of the magnitude of the refugee crisis out of Ukraine? It's huge. And it's a, um, it's not just an issue that Ukrainians are dealing with now, but in terms of what happens in the aftermath following the war, for the country to survive and thrive, uh, you have to have these people come back. You've seen millions of people leave the country to Europe and uh, even you know to the United States around the world, but obviously the closest refuge to, for them would, would be neighboring countries. And don't forget that, that men had to serve. So for a lot of these people, these families were divided and split up. And you, again, were one year in, but early into the war when I, I, I went to Moldova on a trip with the U.S. ambassador to the United Nations and Russia, and I told you that Moldova took in about, you know, three, four hundred thousand refugees. And I spoke with a few there and every single one of them had planned to, to return and they felt guilty for not being there supporting their families and their husbands or boyfriends or brothers. Um, but one year in, I think reality has set in, set in for a lot of people just thinking about how much longer this war could go on. Their lives have to go on as well. 
Um, and that can be very disruptive in terms of what a rebuilt Ukraine could look like when you've lost a significant percentage of your population. Yeah. Let's go back almost exactly a year. And there's a disconnect that I, I'm wondering if you have some insight on. On the one hand, U.S. intelligence was right on the money with respect to the intensity of feeling on Putin's part and the willingness to invade Ukraine. And a lot of people thought it wouldn't happen. Mm-hmm. It came something of a surprise on February 24th. So they were they were very good on that. But they completely overestimated the the strength and might of the Russian army. Have you talked to people who have explained how they could be so right on one thing and so wrong on something else that was just as important? Well, I think one year in, we're getting a clear picture of not only the, the true status of the Russian army at the time, and remember, Russia has conducted war since the dissolution of the Soviet Union, but you know, n- not to this large of a scale. Um, I think a couple of factors fit in here. Uh, reminder that you, the United States had been training Ukrainians, so this isn't just Russia's failure. Ukraine deserves credit for how they've been fighting throughout this war as well. But sticking with just Russia, uh, I think it's an example in sort of to be in simple terms of a bloated um, military uh, with rife with corruption, um, an exaggerated sense of their capabilities, money spent perhaps not smartly in areas where, you know, for traditional combat you necessarily, you know, there, there's no naval involvement right here. You know, thank God no nuclear weapons have been deployed. So from just a battleground perspective, um, it's it's clear that they weren't equipped for a war that would last as long as this one has. And just going back to their initial intelligence, you mentioned our intelligence, U.S. and Western intelligence, Russian intelligence was faulty from the get-go, uh, assuming that they could take Kiev in a matter of weeks and that the Ukrainians would be greeting them with open arms as liberators, which was not the case. So having no preparation, no plan B for what happens if that does, if Ukraine isn't captured in a matter of weeks. And remember in 2014, they took Crimea without any bloodshed there, one without any, any guns, you know, going off, um, no fighting. I think they assumed the same would happen here. And that wasn't the case. And unlike the United States and how I think we've helped train the Ukrainian military, it's very top-down orders from the Russian perspective. And uh, I think we give a bit more leeway to our troops in terms of making decisions on the ground. It's almost like a bottom-up operation. And you, you know, the Ukrainians proved to be very nimble in terms of how they responded to, to Russia. So, and Russia you know, was just, just one mistake after another. In February of 2022, if I had told you a year later we would be having a conversation about how the war was proceeding and Ukraine was still free, would you have been surprised yourself? Yeah. Yeah, I I would have been very surprised, as I think most other experts who were more read in on uh, Russian capabilities and Ukrainian capabilities than I am. I, I was also one of those surprised that Russia ended up invading. I, I also didn't think that that would happen. And one year in, on the one hand, I'm, I'm really thankful that, that Ukraine has stood and that Kiev stands and that the president of the United States can safely, in wartime, travel to the capital of Ukraine and stand there with the president of Ukraine having helped provide some $30 billion in assistance. 
And that having been said, as we talked about before, the t- death toll and the toll to just lives um, and families and society as a whole has been devastating. And this war is nowhere near over. Here's something else we seem to have gotten wrong. And again, I'm not casting aspersions on anyone, you know, in the fog of war and in trying to assess the effects policies will have. It's obviously very, very difficult. And there are a lot of variables. But, you know, we undertook a regime of sanctions against Russia. And you recently interviewed somebody about this. And then the premise to your question to this expert, um, you pointed out that the expectation of the first year of sanctions was a 10% decline in Russian GDP. Mm-hmm. And it's only actually ended up being about two and a half, three percent 3%, which is not quite devastating. What are people saying about how that was misestimated? I think it's once again another example of how sanctions aren't the silver bullet. Um, and you don't have to look at just Russia. I mean, look at Iran and other North Korea, other countries that we've leveled sanctions against. They've continued to, if prosper clearly is not the right word, but they've continued to function and the regimes have stayed in place. In Russia and, you know, the expert that I spoke with, Dmitry Olperovich, uh, it's clear that the Russia was able to bypass some of these sanctions and import from other countries, you know, former Soviet republics. Uh, China has has been a big help in, in the microchip sector and technology. And, and we, you know, we'll probably get to China in just a second, but China has avoided the larger ramifications of directly providing assistance to the United to, to Russia through this war and um, avoided secondary sanctions to this point. Um, but Russia is still a commodity-driven economy and has been able to sell oil and gas, if not to its traditional market and buyers, which was Europe. Uh, you've got countries like China and, and India and others that have been willing to, to step up and take their place. So from all of those perspectives, um, China, ha- Russia has been able to manage rather um, stably, I would say, through this year. And, and Putin, of course, has been focusing on that in multiple speeches, again, blaming the West and accusing the West of wanting to, to bring Russia down. And this is a war between the West and Russia and uh, not Russia and Ukraine. Um, and to that point, as you said, the economy still holds. Now, what happens in the years or the months ahead, you know, there there's some indication that Russia and their economy could suffer more consequentially. But again, one year in, it's not – you compare where Ukraine is and their economy has seen a GDP decline of over 40 percent. Yeah, I wonder if some of it is just that – sanctions and departures of Western companies from a country like Russia, it takes time for that to have a harmful effect. So, you know, whether it's ATM machines or infrastructure or cars or whatever the case may be that are of Western origin, those things work for a while. But when there's no ability to get to get things repaired or parts, um, everything falls apart, but maybe that takes two, three, four, five years. Is that what you're hearing? Yeah, and people adapt. So if you yeah. can't get your Starbucks, you get a Russian equivalent. If you can't get McDonald's, you get, you know, so second rate maybe isn't ideal, but it's manageable. Um, people who 
were used to a lavish lifestyle can still get the same goods that they were getting before. They just pay a premium for them. So you're right. This is something sort of like, you know, putting a frog in boiling water. It, it takes a while for it to take its toll on a society that, as you know, historically has had a high threshold for suffering um, and has been told that this is worth the sacrifice given this existential threat that right. the well, West poses Well, the importance of denazification. Exactly. <laughs> in saving all of those people from the Nazis in, in Ukraine, a country which, you know, is run by a president, uh, a democratically elected president uh, as a Jewish heritage. So go figure. Yeah, go figure. You said something a second ago about how people get used to a lavish lifestyle. And of course, we have a lot of that in recent years in Russia. And some of those people are called oligarchs. I'm sure you're on the phone with oligarchs all the time. <laughs> Why is it that they are pretty acquiescent in all of this, even though their standard of living and the risks to their um, fortunes and everything else are, are quite extreme? Is it just pure terror of, of dear leader Putin? I think we misjudged, and by we, I mean people in the West in terms of what could be pressure by, by points. By we, you mean them. <laughs> not us for sure um, by we i mean you yes I, by, by we i mean not me um no there there had been this assumption that some of the pressure points early on in the war would be to get the oligarchs to turn on vladimir putin now had that been the case early on in in his administration maybe that could have worked a bit more but going back to you know what i had mentioned about his early days and this sort of deal that he made not only with the russian public in general but with oligarchs that you get to keep your money and you stay out of my way in politics um they help they helped elect him the the one you know i would say like almost legitimate election that that, that they held in russia um that having been said, at this point, they are no use to him. And so for – and I think he has never really valued or respected their lifestyles, their – I mean, he he has more money than God, but he doesn't travel to the south of France and, and you know, Miami Beach and, and it doesn't have uh, apartments um, on Park Avenue. And so for him – having oligarchs complain that they can't do the same wasn't going to decide whether or not he was going to pursue this war. And I think ultimately we've come to realize that using oligarchs as, and they've been sanctioned, and they've been sanctioned, and, and, and none of that seemed to persuade Vladimir Putin that, that, that he needs to, to rethink things. We'll be right back with more of my conversation with Biana Golodriga after this. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You've heard it before. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. But it's more than just a tagline. Because State Farm agents are small business owners themselves who live and work in your community. And if you're in the market for small business insurance... Who better to work with than an agent who understands what it takes? State Farm agents can help you create a personalized insurance plan that fits your small business needs and budget. Talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Support for this show comes from Slack. You're a growing business and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens. 
with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. Yeah, I made a facetious comment earlier or a minute ago about you speaking to oligarchs. Do they talk to the press? Do you, have you talked to so-called Russian oligarchs or are they scarce? Early on in the war, they did. And um, I think that was mostly in terms of trying to salvage whatever businesses they had and their reputations. And it, it's it's hard to pity a Russian oligarch. Um, and it's clear they made their money not by starting an innovative company for the most part, uh, but by, you know, stealing resources and uh, becoming quite wealthy off of them from the Russian people. So for those who took their money and started other businesses and expanded to the West, you know, namely even London, I think for them, they viewed their reputations and the media as a, a way to try to defend themselves or distance themselves from the war or even use themselves as mediators, perhaps. Uh, Roman Abramovich uh, was, was in the headlines a few months into the war for trying to mediate between the two sides, um, the Ukrainians and Russia. But, you know, it, it ultimately got nowhere. So they so they stopped talking? I think there's no... Or are they falling out of windows? Well, that, that continues to happen from time to time, which is just so, I mean, come up with something a bit more original at this point. You just, just like roll <laughs> your eyes. Like, really? I mean, can't think of anything else, any other way to kill well, the people? The weird thing about that is, and other people have talked about this, that... You know, Vladimir Putin, if he was really a strong man, could just own it. Why have these accidents, quote-unquote accidents? Why not just own the fact that you're taking this, these retaliatory measures? Is that a sign of, of Putin's wiliness or strength or of his weakness? I mean, he was a KGB man, so some of these tactics he learned along the way. There's a sense of plausible deniability. And up until the war, I think he still viewed himself as a global, you know, a leader on the world stage who liked to go to events like the G20 and, and mingle amongst his peers. So to to own killing people and calling for their poisoning or, you know, and, and he said as such, you know, in, in speeches, He's come out and brazenly said, if I wanted to kill Navalny, I could have, or, you know, things along those lines, um, though he won't mention Navalny's name. So I, I think, you know, all bets are off now. And clearly, r regardless of how this war ends or what happens next, he's a pariah on the global stage, at least among Western countries. Uh, but before, I think he sort of viewed himself as being able to have a foot in both in both worlds. So I, I kind of like being the thug and the KGB guy and the, the, the spy who, you know, people are afraid of and, you know, the thing he hated most and he still says he hates more, more than anything and, and people has no mercy for are traitors, right? So other spies that, that then become double agents or what have you, the, the Skripal murder comes to mind. Um, and so I, I think from that perspective, it was just his decision to not want to literally own you know, these, these deaths, but yeah. at the same time, make it clear that, you know, only one person signs off on them. When the history is written about this first year of the war, what do you think people will say the few pivotal moments were? Clearly the first few days of the war when Kiev wasn't lost, 
when the Ukrainians held their capital. And uh, and Zelensky didn't flee. And Zelensky didn't flee. And Zelensky is another crucial player here. Obviously, you've got the West and the United States standing in support of Ukraine, which has been huge. And it was the only way. It's the biggest factor in Ukraine winning this war is the continued aid from the West. But Zelensky himself, and think about him just with his personality and his charisma and his wartime leadership. I mean, just think of the, the, the blunder that, Rush, that, that Putin made as well. I mean, everyone before the war, anybody who would call him calculating brilliant tactician, playing you know, chess while everyone else is playing checkers. It, Zelensky had a popularity rating of about 20%, 25% in Ukraine. He wasn't popular. And now, after the war began, to see what he was able to do as a leader to travel to capitals around the world and to speak to different parliaments in, in language that, you know, people would just eat out of their hands and um, and speak directly to their own country's history and their own situation so they could relate to what Ukraine is going through. It takes a special skill set. And I think that he will go down in history as a, a Churchill type of world leader who held his country together and became one of the most, you know, well-respected, regarded figures around the world. Um, in terms of, you know, the consequential pivotal moments, I think those early days uh, are, are right up there. And I think the fact that Russia continued to make misstep after misstep after misstep and obviously um, taking back control of the territory um, in, in their counteroffensive last fall was a big game changer. That ultimately led to not only military change in, in leadership in Russia, but also the call for conscriptions and 300,000 conscripts, because Putin, as I told you, was really, really trying to avoid doing that. How do you think American sentiment and opinion has shifted or evolved over the first year? I don't think by much, and no. I'm, I think that's a good thing. I think that it's a relief that the United States for the most part, has stood strong in support of this, this administration and our policy and, and the steps that, that President Biden has taken to unite not only NATO, but to continue to provide uh, as much assistance and funding for Ukraine as we have. So I, you know, some polls, maybe recent polls vary as to how Americans feel. And I think the bigger question is what's going to happen, not only with elections in, you know, next year, but the longer this war goes on, um, you know, are we going to become exhausted with just the amount of money in taxpayer dollars that's, you know, that are being delivered to, to the Ukrainians? I would argue it's worth it and um, it's an important thing to continue doing. I'm just not sure how the public overall would continue to view that support if it if it's longer than another year or two. So it's good to do this assessment and take a look back because of the accidental happenstance of it being a year, and that's the length of time it takes for the Earth to orbit the sun. But now let's look forward. What is what is the best assessment that you have heard about where the war is in its arc and what the future, at least in the near term and medium term, will look like? So the medium to the near to medium term, uh, it's it's pretty clear that Russia, the, the spring offensive that everyone had been waiting for had already begun. It was really a winter offensive that Russia started. And one of the reasons why it hasn't been called as such yet um, or recognized is because it's been quite underwhelming. 
And the experts I speak with um, say it's been happening now for about three weeks. And there's no indication that— Is that because um, Putin didn't see his shadow or did see his shadow? (laughs) (laughs) Puxatani Putin? The Moscow Puxatani, (laughs) right, in the Kremlin. Um, It it is for a number of reasons that um, Putin may be anxious and and not listening to perhaps generals that he should be, that uh, this offensive should have come later and— give Russia time to regroup and train some of these new conscripts. The their most their best trained um, soldiers had many had been killed early on in this war. And it's not easy. I mean, they've got the bodies, they've got the numbers. They can, you know, they can conscript hundreds of thousands of men, but it makes a difference if they're well trained and equipped to to go into battle. And so uh that was one of the failings. And there were rumblings that Putin wanted to make another attempt at Kiev, and perhaps that's his ultimate goal. But it seems that this this offensive, at least, will be focused in the Donbass and um, will likely lead to even more Russian casualties, which, at least according to experts I speak with, uh, believe this will help Ukraine in terms of what they're gearing up for in a counteroffensive in the spring. Basically, try to run through as many Russian soldiers as you can fighting in cities like Bakhmut and other parts of uh, the Donbass there, and then save your weaponry and your manpower for the spring for a counteroffensive, most likely in the southeast. So I've been reading a lot about discussions over weaponry, and we're a year in, and we're still talking about the kinds of things that Ukraine wants or needs and what Western nations are providing. And in particular, there's been a lot of talk about tanks. I don't know a lot about tanks. Um do you know a lot about tanks, Bianca? Um, I've learned more okay. throughout this war. <laughs> so, so there's a lot of discussion about which tanks and how many, and German tanks and American tanks and other tanks. Can you can you talk a little bit about that? And in particular, what's confusing to me is how it can be that we're a year in, and military experts start saying things like, you know, certain Western tanks can make a big difference. Some commentators are talking about German tanks, Leopard two tanks. And uh, American Abrams, uh, M1 Abrams tanks could be a potential game changer. If these things could be game changers, why are we talking about them a full year in? So a couple of points. So the experts I speak with, um, while obviously Ukraine could use tanks and uh, they need about three or 400 tanks, um, it's not the game changer or silver bullet that it's being uh, described as. And there's been a lot of time, a lot of talk spent on you know, will Germany deliver? Why isn't Germany allowing other NATO allies to at least deliver their tanks? And the United States ultimately had to agree to deliver Abrams tanks. And and that that's taken up the crux of the, the tank conversation the past few weeks. Um, experts I speak with say that tanks are not what Ukraine needs now the most. Ukraine needs just more ammunition. I mean, they need bullets. They, they, they need the procurement of, of more weaponry and ammunition. And, you know, this is where you've got a situation that, you know, stockpiles are dwindling or, or amongst allies here in the United States. Didn't Zelensky have that famous quip right at the start of the war? I need bullets. He said, I need, I don't need a ride. I need ammo. I need ammunition. Yeah. <laughs> right. And, and again, um, this is a situation where just the procurement of the ammunition can't come fast enough from the defense companies, uh, 
unlike Russia, who's going through a lot of their own ammunition as well, um, they're not really, I mean, they're using everything for this war, whereas any sensible other country has to make sure, and this is where the, you know, the, the general public would turn on the idea of helping Ukraine if it were to find out that we are foregoing our security needs for the sake of helping Ukraine. So obviously you have to set aside a significant allotment of weaponry that we need to keep for our own defense. Um, and to just continue to generate, I saw a report, though, somebody told me it may be a bit exaggerated that Ukraine was going through 5,000 rounds of ammunition a day. Um, and so we've there have been reports that the U.S. has tapped into, you know, tried to be creative and tapped into stockpiles in, in Israel and in South Korea that we're holding, um, perhaps sending some weapons uh, that, that we've uh, – a cache of weapons that we've held um, from Iran, um, you know, to, to – to, to Ukraine, but it's clearly not enough in the short term um, to send them what they need now. I think they probably have enough now. I think for them, it's just the security of knowing, listen, six months from now, we're going to have more coming our way. But uh, going back to the tanks issue, while the tanks are definitely helpful and and, and Ukraine needs them, uh, I think it's more of just the everyday that the ammunition and the long-range missiles and anti-air defense missiles um, that they are desperate for right now that's a top priority. And we have yet to agree to send them these longer-range missiles for, you know, fear of provoking Russia, going, you know, their capabilities of being launched into Russian, right. the official Russian territory. And again, I think there's a procurement question about, you know, can, can we make as as much as, as needed right now? Yeah, I have several. That, that was a lot of important stuff you said, and I have, I have a number of follow-ups. It's part of the problem with the ammunition I've been reading that the Ukrainians are overusing ammunition because of lack of, they're not so good tactically, so they're firing off more rounds than they need to, and that part of the solution is to train them better. Have you heard that? Yeah, there have been reports of that too, that the United States had been advising Ukraine to sort of tone things down, even in the defense, uh, in the battle for Bakhmut and um, regions there in the last few months to not not give in to Russia necessarily, but at least for now, at least call it a day and uh, preserve what they can for what they envision would be their own counteroffensive, as we discussed, in the months to come. And you were speaking also a second ago about the need for defensive systems, and Zelensky has asked Israel to send what's very coolly named um, David Sling. Is that in the offing? Can that happen? Uh, the Israeli-made air defense system going to Ukraine? I, you know, I, I've been, I've just questioned Israel's role throughout this war, obviously sensitive to the fact that Syria is in their, uh, that Russia's in their backyard there in Syria. Um, for whatever reason, um, and, and this is, you know, multiple administrations now in Israel, there's been a, a change, as you know, uh, in the past few months there with uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu coming back. But even his predecessor had been very apprehensive about giving Ukraine any sort of defensive weaponry. Um, they'd been providing them with medical assistance and what have you, and I believe even some intelligence. But in terms of just the weaponry itself, which President Zelensky ha had been really pressuring them to do. Israel has decided that it it's not in its interest to do such as such. And the United States um, 
I don't believe has been pressuring Israel, at least publicly, to do it either. So whatever politics are taking place, you know, behind the scenes yeah. with, again, Russia there, um, I, I have been a bit puzzled about Israel's role here. But, um, you know, I guess whatever assistance they have been providing has been helpful, better than none. Yeah, what I what I also don't get, and and maybe it's too complicated and the decision makers themselves don't really know and the line shifts. Obviously, there are certain bright lines or red lines that we won't cross so as not to draw ourselves directly into a war with Russia, right? We're not sending Marines to Kiev, right? And that everyone understands. But there are other things that we're doing that we didn't do earlier and didn't do to the same degree. Mm-hmm. What's your sense? Of, are they making it, as, making it up as they go along? If Putin is not rational and Russia uh, and its leaders, Putin above all, have been framing this as a war with the West already. Are we being are we being overly um, literal or clever and cute in how we're deciding to engage or not engage? I, I do think there's something to your question of are we making up as we go? Because whether it's from the persuasiveness uh, of Zelensky and his pleas, it does seem that even U.S. officials off the record, will say, you know, listen, we ultimately give in to a lot of these asks. So what were a definite no eventually become a yes. They go from a no to a maybe to a yes. So it's the type of weaponry we provided. Obviously, you know, we didn't start the war. It was it was javelins in early days, and we went on to HIMARS, and, and the Ukrainians all the time have been, you know, very thankful and appreciative, but saying, what's next? We need more. We need long-range missiles. From day one, uh, President Zelensky has been calling for F-16s, and that had been a no-go. It still is, though I can't say that three or four months from now, that debate won't change. We had the discussion about the tanks as well. So it does seem that every few months, what was a no turns into a yes. And then you can understand the Ukrainians' argument of why not just give it to us now? Because the sooner you give us what we need, the sooner this war ends. And the Ukrainians are cognizant of the fact that as much as the U.S. president and Western allies say we're here with you until the end, he knows that time ultimately is not on his side, um, uh, unlike Vladimir Putin, who assumes that it is. And that he can just wait this out and whether it's pressure from changing, you know, administration in the United States or even amongst allies that at some point he he believes there will come pressure from allies to tell Zelensky to return to the negotiating table. So from Zelensky's point of view, he won himself a- another year last year with their strong counteroffensive and he needs to be doing more of that. And his argument is for me to be doing more of that, I need more of your aid now, not promises that things will come in three to four months. Yeah, do you think we did less than we might have at the beginning, the West? I mean, because the West really didn't think that Ukraine had a shot. <laughs> they wanted oh, sure. not to waste stuff. Yeah. I mean, imagine sending all of this just to go, you know, into Russia's hands. So I, act, I actually so do— So part of it, they're making it up as they go along because the situation on the ground has shifted. Yes. And I think from that perspective, even though it seems like it's taking forever to get things there, it, it has happened rather quickly. Um, once, once it was clear to us, the U.S., that our intelligence that, that Kiev would fall quickly didn't happen. You mentioned China. <laughs> you said we're probably getting to it. <laughs> well, now's your moment. Right. What— what in the hell is going on with China? How is 
she managing and um, balancing all of this? And what do you think people think China's role will be in the coming year? You know, China's turned into the great unknown. And I think China could really sort of uproot all of the the projections that we've had thus far and be a game changer in a sense if China does as U.S. intelligence has acknowledged. And, and we saw um, Secretary of State Blinken say publicly that it does appear China is contemplating helping provide lethal aid to to Russia. Now, as we noted before, the two have still had commercial ties and economic ties, and they've bought um, oil from Russia throughout the war. But providing lethal aid, I don't know whether it's in the form of drones, I don't know exactly how so, I think would be a game changer here because the conventional wisdom would suggest that where we are now, at the rate that the Russian military continues to perform and underwhelm and underperform, the longer this war goes on, assuming that you have continued Western aid and the United States helping Ukraine, the longer this goes, the war goes on, the better chances are for, for Ukraine to come out victorious. Uh, you throw China into this equation, and it's not that all bets are off, but then I think you're just in, in an uncharted territory again. And I, I don't know yet what the assessment would be as to how this would impact the war, but I think it would be a huge setback. And what China's thinking and, and what President Xi is thinking, having seen what he's you know, Russia, this, you know, the friendship that can't be broken, no limits, as he and Putin had said um, just a few weeks before the war in Beijing, clearly didn't go the way Vladimir Putin had sold him on. Uh, I think it doesn't benefit um, Xi to have a defeated Russia in the sense that the United States comes out victorious as the supporter of Ukraine in Xi's mind. But that having been said, continuing this war and then having the United States impose whatever kind of sanctions against China at a time when we had balloon gate and and when relations are already at an all-time low. I don't know what he's thinking by possibly helping Russia here. Is there a corruption problem in Ukraine that will have any bearing on the outcome here? Um, sure. I mean, Ukraine was rife with corruption before the war and uh, was one of the reasons why Ukraine wasn't you know, given uh, uh, an open invitation into EU membership. And um, it's been a challenge for a number of administrations prior to Zelensky's. And I think that he was clearly aware of that going into this war. And, and even most recently, he'd had he'd, he'd fired some of his top officials and advisors just to, to sort of stick with this with this promise that that not only would he battle the Russians on the battlefield, but he'd battle internal corruption as well. Can we talk about domestic politics for a moment? What do you think is the grade that people should give Biden as to how he has talked about the war and support for Ukraine? I think an A, A plus. You think an A? Yeah. Now, there are people, a number of whom are on the Republican side, who think this war is folly and should end immediately and take liberals to task for having been vocally and rhetorically against war for a long time. And now they seem to be embracing war. What is going on in the American right? Well, I can't speak for the American right. I think for the most part, thankfully, those voices are few and they remain fringe. Um, I think you have leadership in both houses that have come out firmly in support of 
this administration and and how it's approached the war and Ukraine in general. In, if, in fact, I think that if anything, their criticism has been that not enough aid has been given in a timely manner um, and sooner. So I don't know how that's going to impact the elections next year. We'll see who the um, who the nominee will be. But Nikki Haley, I saw today, was criticizing Biden for not helping Ukraine you know, as much as it could have and early days uh, into the war. What we need to do and what Biden should have done was give them what they needed to win early. We're not putting troops on the ground. We are not writing blank checks. But when they need the ammunition to win, we should give it to them. I'm not sure what the other prospective candidate, the former President Trump, he seems to be quiet on this issue for now after calling Vladimir Putin, I believe, brilliant or whatever early into the war. <laughs> Many uh, things. Yes. So I I am hopeful that these voices in these naysayers will be outliers. But again, a lot is contingent on how this war goes. I think for the American public as a whole to continue to see atrocities and crimes against humanity um, and, and, you know, officially hearing that from U.S. officials and, and the vice president over the weekend uh, last week in Germany at the Munich Security Conference, I think for the most part, Americans understand it's not a difficult war to understand. And there is this is a situation where there's a right side and a wrong side. And I think from a political standpoint, I think Biden deserves a lot of praise for how he's not only united allies in NATO, but I think just the steadfast support for Ukraine and standing up to Russia is is laudable. Favorite interview of all time that you've done? Favorite interview of all time? Um, I don't know. You've had a couple of viral ones. Yeah, I don't know that those are my favorite. They're not. <laughs> <laughs> they, they didn't end like on happy notes. Yeah, but they were cool. Yeah, um, I, I think I just going back most recently to my time in Moldova, I just think about this one grandmother, this uh, woman who uh, I believe her name was Raisa. And reminded me so much of my grandmother because you know, she was feisty and, and had never met me before, but it was it was happy to talk to me. Had no idea you know, who I was reporting with, and just nothing. Just wanted to tell her story. And she had she was a refugee from from Odessa and came to Moldova and was tell. I mean, yes, and came to Moldova and was telling me about her family that was left behind and her grandkids and how old they were and her daughter who stayed behind because her husband was fighting and. Um, but right before the interview, she just asked, can you give me a second so I can put my lipstick on? And it just reminded me so much of my own babushka who, um, you know, <laughs> here in New York, you know, passed away a few years ago. But before anything we would do, in any pictures or anytime she'd go outside, I mean, there she was with her little compact mirror and lipstick that stains every single thing, right? You know, you can't kiss her without, you know, having lipstick on your cheek or on your coffee cup or whatever. And so I just I just remember that. And I don't know if it's because she reminded me of my grandmother um, or that could have been my family if we had stayed. Who knows? But I don't know if that was my favorite, but it's definitely one of the more recent memorable interviews I've done. No, that's a good one. I'm going to ask you a deeply personal question. Sure. True or false, you are an avid listener of and fan of the Stay Tuned podcast. Oh, I am. I told you I ran marathons <laughs> listening to your podcast. Maybe that's why my times were never that good. I remember listening. I, I find it hear... bizarre that you run to a podcast, yes, even I know. even if it's my podcast. Again, any running coach would say, "Don't do that." 
Um, and I remember running a marathon and I could, I was listening to your podcast and I believe you were talking to Ian Bremmer. I believe, is he still your all time number one? Yeah. Uh, yeah. The most, guest, yeah. most, yeah. Um, and some woman ran by and was listening to Eminem and all pepped <laughs> up. And I was like, you know, we are in two very different places right now. Physically, we're in the same place, but mentally, like, and she was probably in a better place to be honest, but. Wait, did you kick her butt or not? I bet she. I bet she. She whizzed past you with I the bet. M&M. I mean, you know, there's a time and a place. I wouldn't recommend people wanting to, you know, get a PR. Yeah, well, I blame I blame Ian Bremmer. He'll that guy will slow you down. <laughs> yes. Maybe every this day of the week. maybe this interview will help people, you know, speed up their race. Now, I'm will not you? Sure. So, will you listen to this interview? No, you won't. Right? I, I I don't like to listen to myself either. I don't like listening to myself at all. And in fact, when I watch interviews, it's so hard for my old interviews. Um, I hate it. It's cringeworthy. And why your old interviews? I pick at everything. Oh, yeah. I don't like my voice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Did your family comment on your interviews? All the time. All, always positive? Um, you know, I, I would say constructive. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my goodness. Wow. But my mom, my mom watched, I mean, every day she... Do you get like, you know... Um, Jewish parents and Indian parents, I think, are similar in this regard. My parents would comment about whether or not they thought I was eating enough and getting enough sleep, not usually about the substance. Oh, completely. I look tired. Right, um, right, right. Did I? I'm running too much. Eat something. Yeah. Um, yeah. All the, all the really meaty, meaty criticisms. Last question, and I'll let you go, because I know you got to do TV. Where do you think we'll be one year from today if we were to be speaking about Ukraine? I mean, I hate to end on a pessimistic note, but I I think we'll probably still be covering a war. Yeah. And I'm hoping that on the one hand, if that's the case, then Ukraine is, is still pushing back against Russian forces. But at the same time, you know, I think it's the reality sets in that neither side is anywhere near right now a meaningful, earnest settlement. Well, I guess we'll find out <laughs> yeah. as we get through the year. Yeah. Bianca Goldriga, thank you so much for being on the podcast, covering these issues and being a supporter of Stay Tuned. Really appreciate it. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for having me. My conversation with Bianca Goldriga continues for members of the Cafe Insider community. To try out the membership for just $1 for a month, head to cafe.com slash insider. Again, that's cafe.com slash insider. I want to end the show this week by talking about a true giant of the Senate. When I worked as an aide to Chuck Schumer on the Senate Judiciary Committee, I crossed paths with that person. I'm talking about Dianne Feinstein of California who at age 89 last week announced that she would not seek re-election. So that means that 2024 will be Feinstein's 32nd and final year in the Senate, making her the longest-serving woman in the history of the chamber. Now, anyone who follows this stuff closely knows that the last few years have not been easy for Feinstein. She'll turn 90 this year, and it's plain to see she is not the senator she once was. There have been reports, a number of them, of how her declining health has impacted her ability to do her job. That saddens me. She's received a good deal of criticism for it, for hanging on too long. And much of it is legitimate, though I should note 
that I heard it less loudly about male senators like Robert Byrd and Strom Thurmond, both of whom died in office. But no matter how her career ends, Feinstein was a pioneer and a trailblazer and a true original, and she should be honored for that. Just look at how she first came into the spotlight. It was 1978, and Feinstein was president of San Francisco's Board of Supervisors. She had developed a reputation as a moderate, effective member of the board, but her political career seemed to be nearing its end. She had lost two elections for mayor and found herself the target of an assassination attempt when a domestic terrorist group called the New World Liberation Front planted a bomb at her home. The bomb failed to go off, but she would go on to lose both her husband and father to cancer in the same year. By November of 78, she was telling reporters that maybe it was time for her to step back from public life. And then a different kind of tragedy struck. One of her colleagues and friends, Supervisor Dan White, shot and killed both Mayor George Moscone and Supervisor Harvey Milk, who was one of the first openly gay elected officials in the United States. And the murders happened at City Hall, just feet from Feinstein's office. Amid all the chaos and confusion, Feinstein stepped up to a bank of microphones to announce to the world what had happened and to assume the role of mayor. That image of Feinstein, of competence and calm in the face of crisis, would become indelibly marked in the minds of San Franciscans. She would go on to lead the city for 10 years. In 1992, she ran for the Senate and won in what would become known as the Year of the Woman. From her perch on the Senate Judiciary Committee, she became a relentless advocate for gun safety. She authored the 1994 assault weapons ban and following its expiration in 2004, attempted again and again to renew it. Before many of the gun safety groups came into existence, there was Dianne Feinstein. She's also served on the Intelligence Committee, where during the Bush administration, she helped initiate an investigation into the CIA's so-called enhanced interrogation techniques that were used in detainees during the War on Terror. When President Obama took office, she became chair of the committee, and she battled the CIA and White House officials to continue the investigation and make its findings public. Her staff would go on to produce a 6,700-page torture report. And on December 9, 2014, the day the executive summary of the report was finally made public, Feinstein called the CIA's detention and interrogation program a stain on our values and on our history. There's even a movie about it. Feinstein is played by Annette Bening. As I mentioned, I had an opportunity to watch Feinstein up close, and I can say that nobody worked harder than Diane Feinstein, with the possible exception of my boss, Chuck Schumer. And she hired great people. Like Schumer and Ted Kennedy, she was able to recruit and retain smart staffers, people who turned down high-paying jobs in the private sector, to do public service. She understood that to make a difference, you need a team. And that's no small thing. Unlike most senior senators, Diane Feinstein gets to know other staffers and they get to know her. At least that was true when I served in the Senate. I remember one time Senator Schumer and I went over to her office to meet with her and her chief counsel with milk and cookies to talk about a press freedom bill. I remember another time, after going on the Atkins diet, having eaten too many hot dogs and chips and fast food snacks in my time working around the clock for Senator Schumer, Senator Feinstein at a hearing looked at me and said, Preet, have you lost weight? <laughs> I have to admit, that made my day. Most importantly, I remember the time that she refused to do something her Democratic colleagues or some of her Democratic colleagues on the committee wanted her to do when the Democrats were in the minority. And that was boycott a vote so as to deny the Republicans a quorum 
on some vote for a nominee or a piece of legislation the Democrats didn't like. And she refused. She said, I'm not going to avoid coming to work. I came to the Senate to work, not to hide. And work she did. Feinstein has displayed guts and courage. And like her or not, at a time when members of Congress increasingly favor sound bites over substance and focus on personality more than policy, Feinstein has dived into the work. It's always about the work. And that is something to honor and celebrate. So, Senator Feinstein, thank you for your service. Well, that's it for this episode of Stay Tuned. Thanks again to my guest, Biana Golodriga. If you like what we do, rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Every positive review helps new listeners find the show. Send me your questions about news, politics, and justice. Tweet them to me at Preet Bharara with the hashtag AskPreet, or you can call and leave me a message at 669-247-7338. That's 669-24-PREET. Or you can send an email to letters at cafe.com. Stay Tuned is presented by CAFE and the Vox Media Podcast Network. The executive producer is Tamara Sepper. The technical director is David Tattashore. The senior producers are Adam Waller and Matthew Billy. The CAFE team is David Kurlander, Sam Ozer-Staden, Noah Azulai, Nat Wiener, Jake Kaplan, Namata Shah, and Claudia Hernandez. Our music is by Andrew Dost. I'm your host, Preet Bharara. Stay tuned.